0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. An old Welsh preacher rose slowly to his feet in a chapel and he began to speak, and this is what he said When I was a boy of about 12 years of age, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of playing rugby for his country and playing cricket to county standard. I so admired this man that I covered the walls of my bedroom with press cuttings and photographs of him. And I loved to talk about him and to hear his exploits on the sporting fields. He was my great hero. And then when I was 14, I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a keen fisherman, and I used to go fishing with him. And on these occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different standpoint and get to know the man, the man behind the image. And at this point, the the Welsh preacher paused, and he looked at his congregation, and he shook his head slowly from side to side. And then he said, with an air of authority, and the nearer I got to my hero, the smaller he became. The nearer I got to him, the smaller he became. And he told how he discovered the true character of this sportsman whose public image had captivated him and how he'd been deeply disillusioned by it. But then he went on with these words. But God eventually led that downcast schoolboy to a new hero. And I have walked with my Jesus for 35 years now. And in that time, I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I've got to know him better. And the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. The nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. Now, we've been traveling through the Gospel of John as a church family for about 10 or 11 weeks now. And this is what we've been discovering, isn't it? The nearer you get to Jesus Christ, the bigger he becomes. The book of John starts with an amazing panorama, a great view of who Jesus is. It gives us the most incredible prologue it starts even before the creation of the world and says that in the beginning the Word was with God and was God this Jesus this person who came as a as a man was actually there before the world began not only with God but he actually is fully identified as God So we see that God is a a unique being. God is a, a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living forever happy, forever joyful, forever loving and warm toward one another. Jesus is said to be in the bosom of the Father. That's who we're talking about. And this great God, the Son, came all the way down from heaven to earth, from life to death, and he accepted death even on a cross, the lowest death of all, so that he could win back a people to himself. John calls him the light of the world that shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't conquer it. This is the kind of picture of Jesus that we've been discovering, and actually what I've found as we've been reading this book is that Jesus doesn't only get bigger, he also gets more uncomfortable. This is particularly true of the conversations we've seen Jesus having with people one on one. In chapter two, he's attending a wedding and his mother, Mary, comes to him and says, they're running out of wine. It's social disgrace. Social suicide is beckoning. And Jesus responds, Woman, what would you have me do? My time has not yet come. It's a bit standoffish, so it feels. Then he goes to the temple to go for for one of the annual uh, sacrifices, the Passover, and he makes a whip of cords and beats people out of the temple. And says, uh, how dare you defile God's house, my father's house. He then, a man comes to see him at night and starts to try and dialogue with him. He says, you know, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Because no one could do the things that you do, the amazing miracles and signs, unless God was with him. And Jesus replies, again, somewhat uncomfortably, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Then Jesus meets the largest woman in the Bible, the woman of Samaria. I don't know if that joke was used last week, but uh, I thought I had to use it. The woman of Samaria, and again, he's in, he crosses a boundary, he starts speaking to this woman, and then he says, go and call your husband and come back. It's a leading question. She says, um, I'm quite a good husband. And he says, yeah, that's true. You've actually had five husbands, and the man you currently have isn't your husband. Jesus, You're starting to get an impression of what Jesus is like. He's not really what you might call a people pleaser. (laughs) Not necessarily a comfortable guy to be around. In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, one of the main characters is is an enormous regal lion called Aslan. And at one point, one of the young girls in the story asks, is he safe? And the reply comes, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he is good, he's the king, I tell you. And now that's Jesus Christ, he isn't safe, of course he isn't safe, but he is good, he's the king. And every time we meet Jesus in John's Gospel, we see something new, he's God, come in the flesh, and when he shows up in your life, he turns it upside down. When he shows up, enters your world, he might turn the tables over and scatter the coins on the ground. Things will never be the same again if you really meet him but you wouldn't want them to go back to how they used to be. And today, as we're in this story on page 1067, the story of the healing of the official's son, I want you to see that actually we're going to another level and this isn't really about healing. It's about faith. The more I've thought about this text today, the more I feel this is actually the most stunning conversation that we've had so far. This story is easily read and slips by, especially if you're familiar with the Bible. You may think you've, you've you've read it so many times, but if you stop, I want us to stop and really think about this story. And I think you'll agree that the encounter is quite stunning. So let me just tell the story again and show you that there's something deeply uncomfortable about what Jesus says here. But as the great preacher, Dick Lucas, advises, when something in the Bible seems odd to me, that's exactly the point you need to stop and ponder, because the thing that seems odd to me is often the main point. What Jesus says to this royal official is deeply uncomfortable, but the point of the discomfort is to arrest your attention, to get you to stop, sit up, listen and think. And it's the very thing we need to grasp because it speaks to us directly. The point is this. We tend to live as though seeing is believing. That the things I can see, the things I can experience, the things that happen to me right now are the things that are real. And that's the stuff I'll believe in. But Jesus actually demands a complete reversal of that. According to Jesus, believing in him is seeing. You have to believe in him without seeing him. Now that's a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of life. And in fact, the whole of this book, John's Gospel, is written to help us believe. Chapter 20, it gives us the the key, it's at the back door. Chapter 20, verse 30 says, uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see the reason for the book? is to help you believe. And that by believing there's a promise, you get life in his name. Life in all its fullness. Life that never ends. Do you want that? I've got two points today. And after I'd come up with them, I was appalled to discover that they're actually a quote from a Christmas movie called The Santa Claus Apparently a quote from Little Elf Judy. And I now realize I may have lost all credibility because of this. One person's left already. But anyway, here it is. I had to fess up in case there's some Santa Claus fans. Here's the, uh, the two points. One, seeing isn't believing. Two, believing is seeing. Seeing isn't believing. We pick up the story after Jesus has been on a trip through a region called Samaria, and he had an extraordinary conversation with a woman at the well, and she had gone back and told the whole village, come and listen to it, meet this man. He told me everything I ever did. And the whole town comes and listens to Jesus. And they end up believing in him, and they actually beg him to stay for another two days and talk to them and teach them. And there we have in chapter... Um, 4. It says in verse 39, Many Samaritans believe, many of the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And so now, after that great triumphant mission through Samaria, Jesus goes back home up north to the region that he's from in Galilee. And in verses 43 to 45, there's a strange episode where it's actually caused a lot of debate. What's going on here? After the two days he left for Galilee, and it literally says, because Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He went to Galilee because... He didn't have honor in his own country. Why is that? Well, most likely because at this point, the heat is going up. Jesus is getting to be very well known. In chapter 7, it says that there are plots afoot to kill him. Sometimes he had to go to Galilee just to get away from danger. So he's going up there, perhaps to turn the heat down a bit. And uh, the Galileans welcome him. He's a local boy, a native son. He's not such a cause celebre as he is in Jerusalem. He doesn't get great honor back home. And while Jesus is there, he has this extraordinary encounter with a royal official. This man who makes a journey from Capernaum to Cana, 20 25 miles, why? Because his son is close to death. There it is on uh, uh, in verse 46, there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum, and when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come And heal his son, who was close to death. Now, some of you are parents. And uh, if you're not a parent, let me tell you, there is nothing in life like a sick child. A really sick child. There's nothing that hits you that is so devastating as a sick child. Some of you parents maybe know that. When our daughter was about two, she uh, had a fever fever. And she got her temperature went up and, up and up and up until eventually she would have a fit and go blue around the lips and just lie there like this. And let me tell you, Melissa has got quite a set of lungs on her. I mean, it, there was some screeching in our house when that happened. So we took her into the hospital and they said, well, it, you know, it could be this thing called febrile convulsions or it could be meningitis. We have to do a test. So you've got this little two-year-old, all hot and in a vest. And they said, they take her into this uh, cubicle, and there she is on the bed, this tiny little mite. And they said, now, what we're going to have to do is take uh, some spinal fluid out. So um, we usually advise parents to to leave when this happens. So they roll up her vest, and there she is, crouching down just like this. And I went away. I felt I was going to fall apart. I just had to turn, and they pulled the curtain across, and you heard this moaning, and then... they they let me go back in and there she was just sitting there scrunched up on this bed this tiny little two year old oh your heart is breaking thank God it was febrile convulsions not meningitis nothing like a sick child you would do anything to get them better anything at all and this man has come and he's, he's seen his son get fever and he's seen his son slipping away from him and he's maybe seen him, his look of fear in his eyes and he's thinking, how long has he got? And he's heard somehow that Jesus has got miraculous power and so he's just banked everything on, getting down to see this guy, bring him back, we're going to sort this. So he makes the journey in person. He doesn't, send, he doesn't send his servants, he goes himself. He's quite an important guy. He's a royal official. He works for Herod. He's a man of some substance. But he goes himself, he makes the journey, 20, 25 miles, and he begs, he's begging, pleading, please come down and heal my son. Nobody begs like the parent of a terminally ill child. Now just imagine the scene, imagine the tone of his voice, pleading, imagine the drama, all eyes, everyone who's there is looking at Jesus, what's he gonna do? They know he's got the power to do something, And in light of all of that, okay, just look at what Jesus says. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. (gasps) What? What is he saying to this poor man? How come? What is Jesus getting at here? He chooses this critical, dramatic moment to critique people, who only believe because they've seen miraculous intervention. And he's not particularly criticizing this man in isolation, but everybody, you people, only believe because you've seen signs and wonders. See, their basic position is that seeing is believing. I'll believe if I see something happen. And Jesus is saying, seeing isn't really believing. It's not good enough, because to Jesus, A faith that's based on what I've seen and experienced is no faith at all. Now this is very striking that Jesus would choose this moment to make this point about belief. It must mean this. It must mean that there's something even more important to Jesus Christ than rescuing a man from his distress. There's something even more important than rescuing this man from his distress at that moment. Instead of just dealing with it, he challenges Now, this applies to you and me as well. There's something that's even more important to Jesus Christ than rescuing you from your distress. What is it that's more important to him? It's that you come to believe in him truly. That's more important. And you say, wow, come on. I mean, the guy did believe, didn't he? He makes the trip. He obviously believes that Jesus can do something. You're right. He does have some level of belief. But it's not enough for Jesus. Merely believing that Jesus is powerful to do some things, that he has some special powers, is not enough. Jesus wants to move the man on from where he is. Imagine he's there where Maxim is. He wants to move him from there to there. True faith. Deep belief. Trust. Trust. Let me put it this way, just imagine that the man had got what he'd asked for. Jesus says, yep, okay, I'll come with you. Off we go, pack the backpack, we're off to Capernaum. He goes, he lays his hands on, the child is healed. What has the man got? He's got Jesus, the healer. But here he gets much more. He gets Jesus the Lord and Savior. He gets not just a healer who comes and lays hands on and sorts the problem, but he gets someone with immense stature and power who can heal with a word at a distance. See, Jesus Christ doesn't want to just give the man back his son. He wants to give the man himself. Jesus is more interested in This man and you getting a right relationship with him than in granting you relief from your suffering, as great as that may be. Let me say it again. He's more interested in getting you in a right relationship with him than granting you relief. Now, I guess we've all prayed for a miracle at some time or another. You may have prayed something like this. Lord, if only you'd heal me from this sickness. If only you'd give me a life partner, a husband or wife, someone to love. If only you'd get me out of this hole I'm in this situation, if only you'd help my children, then I'll believe in you. But such prayers are full of problems. The first problem is that we're the ones setting the terms, not God. And the second problem is that we're pursuing God for what we can get out of him, what we can get from him, rather than for who he is. And God is not satisfied with such prayers. Even though sometimes he's gracious and he does answer them, sometimes. God is too great, too glorious to want that kind of relationship, a relationship where you set the terms and where you're only in it for what you can get out of him. Now you wouldn't think that that was a good way to pursue a romantic relationship, would you? You wouldn't think this was a good way to pursue someone of the opposite sex, that I would set the terms on the relationship and only pursue it for what I can get out of it. It's not acceptable in romance. Why would it be acceptable for a much higher being, God himself? So that's why Jesus chooses this opportunity to press home the need for true faith. True faith humbly accepts God's terms. True faith humbly accepts God's timing for deliverance. True faith hangs on God's word, not what we can see. Truth, faith, believes God, even when sight is challenging, even when it can't see. And we see this in the second part of the conversation because Jesus really is showing that believing him is seeing. Look with me again at verse 49. The royal official is standing there thinking, what has just happened? I just told him my son's dying, and he started talking about issues to do with faith. Maybe uh, he didn't hear me. But this is hardly the time to debate uh, theological questions of believing. We need some action. A little less conversation, a little more action. So he says, verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's going to die. He's begging again, probably on bended knee. And notice how Jesus responds. He agrees, but only part way. He sets the terms. He's not going to come. He tells the man to go home. But he sends him with a promise. Verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Now there's a challenge, isn't it? What's the man going to do? He hasn't got many options now. He's got to believe Jesus can keep his word against all possibility and probability. And then there's the breakthrough. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. I think maybe the most important word in this whole section is the word departed. He he left, I wonder if that was the longest journey of his life. He's on the way to, when he was on the way to Cana, he'd been burdened and worried, but he's full of hope and anticipation. Now he's on the journey home. And he's going back alone. He's given it his best shot to bring this healer back, and now he's going back empty handed. All he has is a promise. All he has is a naked word Go, your son will live. Now it's a long way on foot, it requires an overnight stop. I doubt that he slept a wink that night. I imagine he was tossing and turning all night long and seeing his son's face in his mind's eye and perhaps wondering, will I ever see him again? But while he's still traveling, the next day his servants come running to meet him. It's a 20-mile, 25-mile journey and they've set off as soon as they could. Why? Because he's better. When did it happen? Yesterday, one in the afternoon. It was the exact moment when Jesus spoke and the man and his whole household believed You see, now he really believes. Now he has true faith. He's accepted the terms that Jesus sets, you go, I don't need to come with you. He's accepted the timing that Jesus has decided, the boy will get better when I say. He's taken Jesus at his word, although he's never seen a healing at a distance before, although it requires that believing that Jesus' speech can change situations and and heal and create new possibilities, It required all of that and he believed and went. And now he sees who he's really dealing with and it says he and his whole household believed. Now notice how faith is kind of a journey here. There have been perhaps three stages. First of all, the man heard about Jesus and put some measure of trust in him and went to ask for his help. Then he took Jesus at his word and departed in hope and in faith that the situation would change. And finally he and all his household really believed. See, Jesus, in his apparently brisk and harsh treatment of the man, was issuing a challenge, a call to true faith and total dependence. Not content just with solving the problem and healing the boy, he wants to call the man to a new place, a place of trust, dependence, and living faith. And that is the call that he makes to you today. Friends, where are you in this story? Are you like the Galileans? They know about Jesus. They sort of like him. They welcome him. But they're only really interested in what he might do for them. They're not really interested in following. Or are you like the man at the start he's, he's kind of coming and asking for something specific oh, I, you know, I, I want you to do this for me but you're not really interested in Jesus following him and relating to him for who he is or are you on the journey home have you heard his voice and trusted and are following hoping that his promise will come true taking Jesus at his word have you departed we need to get on the journey home and stay on it why is this so important well in uh, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar Brutus and Cassius are discussing the conduct of the war Brutus points out that if they don't act now they will probably be beaten and he says these uh, famous words there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune omitted All the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Our lives are like that. There's a moment where God comes and speaks to us. He may be speaking to you right now. There's a tide that's come in. You've ended up here this morning. I don't know how. You're here, you're hearing God's word. You've seen people singing God's praises. You're hearing the voice of Jesus Christ in his word and he's calling you to, to believe in him, to put your trust in him, to lean your whole weight on him, to rely on him for your life, for your future, to follow him, to believe and have life in his name. Now if we just stay at seeing is believing and I'll only believe it if, such and such a thing comes true we are bound in the shallows and in the miseries if our faith just relies on sight then we'll have no power in our lives against temptation and against sin why would you fight temptation and sin when you've got no trust that God's word is true and that holiness matters every sin is an act of unbelief People only steal because they don't believe that God will provide for them. People only lie because they want to cover themselves. They don't believe that God will look after them. People commit adultery because they don't believe that keeping God's word in his way is truly satisfying. Every sin is an act of unbelief. If our faith relies on sight only and what we can see and experience, we'll be totally shaken when things go wrong. When sickness comes or loss, grief, suffering will shake us to the core if we're depending on sight. Our lives will be like a small boat on the ocean tossing up and down on the waves because living by sight is not robust. It won't, it's not an anchor in the storm. But if we take Jesus at his word, if we trust him and depart and go on the journey home, we will find that faith grows day by day we will find a new strength to change we'll find a new strength to show grace to other people believing that he's shown such grace and love to us we'll find a new strength to forgive people because we will believe that he really has forgiven us everything we will find a new strength and stability in the storm if we take Jesus at his word if we live by faith not by sight Fanny Crosby was a 19th century hymn writer and poet. She had lost her sight at the age of six weeks because of some medical mistreatment. But the disability, as she grew, caused her not to be bitter towards God but to rely on Jesus ceaselessly. She drew all of her strength from him, all of her inspiration. And she wrote some of the most powerful Christian poetry of the 19th century. Let me finish with these words from one of her hymns. Some of you will know them very well. Maybe they will form a, a prayer for us. Then we'll pray together. All the way my Saviour leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell. For I know. Whatever before me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know, whatever before me, Jesus doeth all things well. Let's pray. Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together today. We thank you that you've met with us in the singing, in the praying, in the reading of the scriptures, in the preaching. We thank you that you are ever-present, and sometimes you're specially present by your spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a reliable guide, that you lead us all the way if we will put our trust in you, that you are not content with us just to call on you when we feel like it or try and get you to get us out of a hole and carry on as we were before. You want to come in, turn the tables upside down, change everything and put yourself at the center because that's where you rightly belong. Help us to live as though you are everything. Help us to live for your glory. It is our chief purpose to glorify you, to enjoy you forever. Gracious Lord, give us that faith that we read of in this passage, that the man and all his household believed. Give us that kind of faith, we pray. Faith that moves mountains, believing in his name, that we may have life. Pray in Jesus' strong and powerful name, amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net